Welcome to Village Church Online. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at Village Church. And today we have this really great opportunity to step into a text that you may feel like you know really well. You might feel actually so intimately involved in this text because you've used it time and time again to put steel into your spine, to give you motivation, to give you focus, and to give you hope as you step into situations that are a bit uncertain. When you have something ahead of you, you might feel like this very verse is the one that's gonna give you what you need as you walk through it. This is gonna help be the thing that that gives you the desired outcome of your heart. This is the thing that's gonna help your will be done only if Christ strengthens you. And it is Philippians 4, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And when we read this verse out loud and when we pray it over our lives and when we pray it to God asking for that strength so we can do all things, sometimes we contextualize the idea of all things being the very thing we want. When we say all things, we're like, man, no, my thing. I want my thing to be done. That fits into all things, doesn't it? So God, I need your strength to make sure that happens. And when we look at the verse like that, there can sometimes be some real benefits. We can have these moments, these very real valid moments of the Holy Spirit moving in our lives in those times to actually empower us to do something more than we could have otherwise. And so I don't want to actually... In, invalidate those moments that you've actually had with this verse, but I want to actually plead, maybe there's something more to it. You see, my family and I this year thought we'd start a new tradition of actually going Christmas tree hunting, meaning we would actually go out and cut down our very own Christmas tree for the first time. The history of my life, I've never done this. We've always had a plastic tree. We've always set it up in our home. It always just looks perfect because it's built that way. And I realized very quickly that when me and my family went out to the tree farm, that trees don't grow in unison. They don't grow the same way for all trees. Depends on the sun they get, the water they get, how they live, their root structure, how they're just built to grow. It's a little bit random. And even if they're pruned, they're not all perfect. And so quickly as we walked in, a bunch of trees were already taken and we saw ones that were like, okay, right? They're, they're a little bit lopsided. They're not the exact size you want. They don't look perfect, picture perfect, like a tree that you'd want in your house. But we found one that we thought ultimately would be good enough. You know, this is gonna actually do what we want it to do. The outcome's gonna be fine. And so I put my toque on that tree and just kept looking. And my kids were running around and then finally I hear my son Jacob, my oldest, just scream to us from way far away saying, Daddy, Daddy, I think I found the tree. And so we start walking over there and we find this whole new section deep in the back of these perfect trees. And so if we had just stopped at the front end of what that tree was, we'd have a little bit of a janky tree that we'd be satisfied with because we thought it was good enough, but we wouldn't have actually been able to realize and experience this beautiful, symmetrical, full tree that my son found as he went even further in. And that's what I think we need to do with this text, I think we can sometimes live under the assumption that what is done in our life is good enough and not be willing to move beyond it. Like we read it like we've read it always and we say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Man, what a verse to have to motivate us. But then we miss out on the treasure that's actually found in the context of it. The treasure that the Bible's been written in this way that we can actually realize that this was not just written for us when we want to win a soccer game or when we want to go into a job interview or when we want something to go well, but it was actually written by the this guy, Paul, who's sitting in a prison to this Philippi church that's actually trying to support him and is stepping back into his life and brought like a gift basket for him. And now he's responding to that and telling them about something much deeper. So let's read the text and see what we can find at first glance and then go through it line by line because I think there's something here. In fact, Paul even says there's a secret in this text to something that you might ultimately be longing for more than just that one outcome that you sometimes apply it in. So let's read from verse 10. This is Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. 
I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That context already frames it a little differently, doesn't it? Like if we were to just, just from reading this, were to now read that sentence again, we're more informed. We kind of understand it a bit more. When he says, I can do all things, he's really talking about this in verse 11, that I've learned to be content in all situations. Like in the lows and in the highs, when he's abounding or when he's hunger, when he has plenty or when he has needs, he's learned these things. But this actually comes out of an even further conversation. It, it talks to the momentary feeling he had when the church of Philippi actually revived a concern for him. Verse 10 says this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. This is Paul's response to an action this church had of love for Paul. So they send this guy from their church and he brings this like this gift to Paul. And Paul's like, man, I'm feeling actually something in this moment, like something outside of what this contentment might feel like. I'm feeling a rejoiced feeling. I'm feeling very thankful and happy for your concern for me that you actually revived it. And the church then had that action of reviving. Like this begs a question of us. Are there moments and people in your life right now that you need to, like the Philippian church, revive your concern for? Maybe you're a dad who hasn't spent enough time with his kids. Maybe you're someone who hasn't actually pushed into your significant other this love and this care and this compassion and this space and this presence that you should be. I mean, all throughout my life, I've had to always check myself on this. I remember back when Mercedes and I were dating, we started dating at like 16 and 17 years old. I was like hopped up on romance, like romantic comedies, romance, all of these things. I just wanted this girl to love me. And so I tried to do everything, even when it was awful, to make her fall in love with me. I remember one time I was going on this trip and I thought I'd leave her with a thousand kisses so that she wouldn't go without a kiss from me. And so I cut out a thousand X's on paper that I drew with permanent marker and then thinking extra romantic so she she could remember to smell me. I sprayed the little box I filled it with with my cologne. You see, the awful thing was that when you opened this box, you got this disgusting smell of like permanent marker and Chris's like month old cologne. It was like the grossest gift I've ever given somebody. But this is me trying to be intentional to show my concern, but show how I loved her. And are there things that you need to do that God's actually been calling you to do to revive your concern for others? It may be being romantic with your spouse and making time to date them, to date him or her. It may be for your kids. Like I try and do this thing where... I, I go on these daddy dates with my sons to show them how much I love for them because they have the same love language as my wife. Like I realize now love for my wife actually looks like spending quality time. It's not making boxes of kisses and spraying it with cologne and giving her this little stink box. It's like, it's actually so much more about the spending the time with them and all of my kids have that. And so I look to spend time with each one of my sons. And even like when I had two, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is a lot to pour into. And then we just kept having kids. And now I'm totally at a loss of how I'm going to find the time to love them all well. But by God who strengthens me, maybe I can. But there's this idea that are there things that we need to do to step back into deeper relationships like the church in Philippi so that the outcome in someone else's life might be what Paul experienced, this rejoicing in the Lord. And he continues saying that, hey, this isn't the only thing he cares about. He doesn't just care that the church would think about him or give back to him, but he gets into the meat of what he's getting to. 
He continues, you were indeed concerned for me. Like, it's not like you just revived it. I get that you did care, but you didn't have the opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. So he's saying, I didn't really need this. Like, I'm really thankful for it. I had a real emotive response. So I'm really rejoicing in the Lord that you gave me this gift, but I didn't need it. Why? Because I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content to be content. This is the very core of what he's talking about. He says, there's a way in your life to actually find contentment, to actually be content in every situation. Like we're at the end of a year that's been really hard. A year I think that's developed a lot of discontentment in our lives, a lot of wishing and longing for something else. Like, and contentment is something we might aspire and want. It's like, we just look to wanting this moment where we can say, man, regardless of the things that happen around me, like Paul and the highs and the lows and everything, I can have a steady contentment, kind of this non-fleeting sense of being okay in life. But if you look back at 2020, is that really what you experienced? Was 2020 a year for you where you were able to solidify contentment? Or was it one where you experienced a lot of discontent? Like, were there actually moments in your life where you were longing so hard for something that it caused you to question the very things you believed? Where you lost your job, your relationship got really tense because you spent a lot of time together. You started like having very little patience for the people around you. You longed so badly just to be in the groups of people. You started resenting people in their decisions. You had a difference of opinion on what was actually happening in the world to the very extent that you started hating the people around you, that you had a discontentment with the church that you were serving or being part of because they weren't meeting again. Was 2020 a year of contentment or discontentment for you? In university, I used to love these first day of class moments because in our first day of class, we'd always go through a syllabus and the syllabus would show us what was it we had to, like, to actually work on. What was it that we were over the next year gonna really work on in our class so that we'd actually have the outcomes desired by the course? Like, what does that look like? And it was always so clear. You're gonna do this assignment. You're gonna work on this thing. You're gonna read these books. You're gonna do these things. So what if we, as, as a people here in the church, didn't look to 2020 and think, oh man, what an awful year. I feel so discouraged. But look to it as an opportunity that God gives us to see it as a syllabus for our lives, to look into it and say, man, by showing where my discontentment surfaced, I'm able now to identify the idols that I put above my relationship with Jesus. Because Paul says right here, and he, he ties it beautifully into the last verse, that contentment is now tied to who? Jesus, who strengthens him. You see, and Paul uses this word contentment in a really unique way. The contentment that he uses isn't just about this idea of feeling happy, but it's actually a self-sufficiency that's actually a very stoic idea. It's the idea that you yourself can actually find contentment outside of the circumstances you're in. You can be whole just by yourself and nothing can break into that. You see, this is what Paul uses. And he actually uses this word because it's a popular word in the Roman Empire and where his people were living in the church of Philippi. So you have Paul saying this type of contentment that you want by finding, that you're trying to find in self-sufficiency is exactly what I'm telling you you will only find in a relationship with Jesus. And that was like totally radical, totally absurd for them to think that a self-sufficiency can't be found in yourself, but can only be found in a relationship with him. You know, in the, in the book of James, which is a letter written by Jesus' half-brother, he actually goes into great length talking about what this means. And let me just read you this one part that I think help outline what a contentment in Christ looks like rather than a self-fulfilling contentment that desires our circumstances to be well. 
It says this in verse 22 of chapter one. It says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. So there's this idea of being a doer in the midst of whatever context you're in. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself away at once, goes away and at once forgets what he was like. This is what he's saying. He's saying, you, when you look to yourself as far as who you are for whatever fulfillment you need to either be the person you need to be to function in a certain way, when you're saying, I need to be this person so I can do something special, powerful, purposeful, fulfilling in my life, something that has achieved something, something that has meaning and value, you're looking at the wrong person. He says, if you look to yourself, and this isn't just for non-Christians who are like, man, like, I don't know who I am, or I've been dealing with this identity piece, or I'm tied too much into what I do, and that's who I think I am. No, I'm talking to people who still believe they're transformed radically by the grace of Christ and say they're a new creation, like people who are in this relationship where they believe that Jesus lived this perfect life on their behalf, died on the cross in their place, rose again, showing his power over death, and now live differently, empowered by the Spirit. That's even us. When we look into our mirror and say, man, I'm a new creation, I shouldn't be acting this way, or try and find the motivation we need to to live and be doers in a certain way, to find contentment based on who we are now in Christ, we're looking to the wrong place. Listen to how James continues. He says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no here who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. James is saying that Jesus, when he came, was actually confronted with this and said, hey, I'm not here to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill and to perfect it. The idea that Jesus is the perfect law, he's the one we should be looking at. So whether you're not a Christian and you're finding discontentment all the way through 2020, or you are a Christian and you're trying to muster up the courage in yourself and be very stoic and self-sufficient, like the word he uses for contentment, both things are in error. Both things are asking you now to live differently unto Jesus. Jesus. Don't look at yourself as new creation. Look to Jesus, who is the firstborn of all creation, not meaning the one who was born first. Paul talks about this in Colossians, but the one who's actually like the highest level of authority, the highest perfection, the number one ranked. Look to Jesus over and over and over and over and over again in any circumstance. And this framework of looking to Jesus for contentment is the very thing that's going to drive you to actually have contentment regardless of the circumstance you're walking through. And this is where it gets real for Paul. He says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. He says he's experienced both. This dude sitting in prison, just got a gift, experienced thankfulness for it. And it's like, hey, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. I know in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He's saying, you're gonna go through situations in your life and you've experienced this where you are living it up, where you're living the life you want, where things are going super well. But he's saying that's not the ultimate. He says, it's not even just when you're doing things and going wrong, like when everything falls apart. He's saying that's not the ultimate. Paul sits in this beautiful place of having nothing to gain and nothing to lose. He says, nothing can be better. Why? Because I have Jesus. Earlier in this book, he actually says, man, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Like I can live and yes, unto Christ live and that can be a good thing. But if I die, I gain. Why? Because I lose all of the earth? No, because I gain a living relationship with Jesus like I've never experienced before. I'm fully in his presence. There's something to be gained here. He says his life here does not depend. His contentment, his sufficiency, his ability to live in a way that's content unto Jesus and experience everything isn't dependent on his circumstances. 
Where would you put yourself right now if you were to say, hey, I'm living it high or I'm living it low? Like, where, where would, you, would you say that you're in a place right now where you're abounding? I think a lot of us are. I think even despite what we've gone through in 2020, a good majority of us are living in this place where we have a lot. We have food, we have clothing, we have shelter, we have money to do things that are entertaining and to kind of treat ourselves. We have people around us who love us. We have relationship. But what if you're feeling low? Maybe you're in a hard place like that. Maybe you're in a place where it's like, man, things aren't going well. I've lost my job. I've been living like check to check from the government. I'm not sure where to go next. I don't have great relationship around me. I've been feeling really low. It's a really interesting statistic that no matter what you've experienced in COVID right now, in this season where everything's changed, all of us are experiencing higher levels of anxiety than we've experienced before. Like the mental health issues that are happening in our society are significantly risen. Why? Because we haven't been able to experience the contentment that we desire. Because we are not, no matter our greatest efforts, doing well enough to be fully content. You see, I deal with this all the time with people, even through the end of their life stuff. It's like, there's all these moments in our lives that we can't control. And when we can't control them, we fall into the trap of needing something more, of needing something greater, of realizing that all of our efforts are just in vain, that we'll never actually do it. So what's the hope here? What's the hope if you have a lot and you're still feeling discouraged and you're still feeling discontent? What's the hope if you have little and you're like, man, will things ever change for me? Am I stuck here? What's the hope for all of us? It comes out of this. It comes out of the idea of how Paul expresses what he does and what he knows and how he lives. Take out a pen and circle these four things. He says in verse 11, I have learned in whatever situation. In verse 12, he says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. So circle, I've learned, I know, I know. And in every circumstance, as it continues in verse 12, I have learned the secret of facing plenty. There's something that can be learned here and should be an incredible, incredible encouragement to all of us, regardless of where you are. Something that can be learned in the way we grow in things. Like, I tell you what, okay, I've been doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu for about four and a half years consistently. When I started, I thought I could, like, I went in thinking that maybe I could beat somebody in a fight. Like, I was, always had this little bit of arrogance. Like, if I got into a street fight or something happened with my family, I'd be able to step in and actually do something. Until I hit the mat with a trained individual and I got completely tuned. Like, it's like, they knew things that I did not. And then over the course of four and a half years of putting time and effort and ongoing dedication into the sport, I've actually learned something. Like I've, I've learned that I can now actually do things that I normally couldn't. I think in a different way with the body and how things work. I know that I've applied things that I've learned and can actually do things. And so I love to invite new friends to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu who are like more fit than me, maybe a little more strong than me. Because why? Because I know I can take them. I know that I've trained. I know things that they don't know. I've learned things that they don't. I have this ability then, and I keep a puke count. Literally, I have guys who come to the gym who have thrown up because they've rolled with me, not because I'm stronger than them, but because because I've learned things. So it should be an encouragement to you that real things can be learned. I'm not just talking physical. I'm talking like spiritual, real learning of the soul. Like, do you have things in your life that drive you to be discontent that you wish they didn't? One of the things that always happens in my life is I suck at taking criticism. Like, it's been a hard thing for me. I'm a words of affirmation guy who needs to have people like speaking life and encouragement into my life. And if I don't have that, it hurts. I struggle with that. 
I'm so excited when someone tells me I'm awesome. And so when it comes into a place like, let's say preaching, for example, it can be a really hard sell to try and avoid all sorts of criticism because criticism is so readily available. I remember the first time I got to preach, I was a receptionist at Village Church and a church in Maple Ridge, British Columbia asked me to come and preach there. And so I went and I preached and I remember being so nervous. What was I gonna wear? And okay, I found this hat because I was trying to be hip that looked with what I was wearing and looked really good. And so I put it on and I went and I preached this sermon and I had put so much time into it and I thought it was just great. Like, I honestly thought I preached the best sermon of my life. Like, I went up there and I left that pulpit thinking, man, I am so made for this. And I walked to the back of the room. And you know why I walked to the back of the room where people, as people were worshiping? Was because I wanted to be at the door so that people leaving would tell me how great I did. So as I'm standing there and worship is going on, I have this older man stand up and he walks over to me and he shakes my hand and he looks me in the eyes. And here I am prepped thinking, man, this is gonna be great. Like he's gonna so encourage me. And he looks at me, he says, I came here to hear the gospel, not for a show. I'm never coming back to this church. You need to take that hat off when you preach. Like my heart was crushed. Those words, after that moment, I had a whole lot of people, because I was thinking in my head, like, how, didn't you hear like, didn't you hear what I said? Was the hat just that distracting? Like, you, I preached the gospel clearly. Didn't you hear it? And every person after that came and encouraged me. They actually invited me back for a whole series so I'd be able to preach again four times. But that one man's words discouraged me so much that I found no contentment, no joy out of the other people giving me encouragement. Fast forward to last month. I get invited to the church that we rent from, which is a Seventh-day Adventist church, to actually speak for this worship relief night they have. And they want me to speak. And so I go in and I prepare myself. And a significant difference between the two churches is that the Seventh-day Adventist church believes that the Sabbath is a holy day on a Saturday, not Sunday, which makes it great for us being able to rent. And so I go in and I start to preach and I'm preaching out of James and I, it's like, I'm going really well. And I get to this point where I'm talking about a gathering of the church and I say, Sunday gathering. And immediately I catch myself because like I just spoke heresy and I'm like, oh no, like what have I even done in this moment? Like, and I, I try and backtrack a little bit. I'm like, or Saturday, because I know that's more important. And I start talking that way. And then I go on in my sermon. So I leave that room knowing, knowing that I screwed up in this context, hoping they'll still let us rent from them, knowing they'll probably never ask me to preach again there. But I leave. And the very first thing I hear, this guy comes up to me and he says, it was so distracting when you said Sunday gathering. You need to not say Sunday gathering next time. You should have said something like Sabbath. And I was like, ah, oh, yeah, you're right. I totally know. I totally made a mistake there. He said, no, 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 like, and he just kept going and going and criticizing and criticizing and trying to tear me down. You know, the difference between that moment and the moment I had the first time I preached a sermon is that over the years, God has been gracious enough to give me a better understanding of who I am in him, that the gospel informed what I heard rather than my own desire to be okay. It was Jesus' words that were louder in that place. I learned over time to take criticism in a way that was less personal, to take it in a way that was constructive, to say, you might give me feedback that might go to hurt my heart, but I'm not gonna let it. I'm gonna know who I am in Jesus and who he says I am, and I'm gonna continue to be myself and try to be faithful to him every step of the way. You see, this is the contentment that Paul talks about, one that can be learned, that there is a secret to all of these things. So what's that secret? And it brings us right into verse 13. I can do, remember this now, I can do is actually, I can find contentment in any context, all things, any context, through him, Jesus, who strengthens me. This is the idea that now, in a relationship with Christ, I'm a different person. 
I'm no longer just Chris as dad. I am a father in Jesus and everything I need for that can be found in him. I am a husband in Jesus. You are a mother in Jesus. You are an aunt in Jesus. You are a friend, a brother, a sister, a grandparent. Uh, like uh, you're a worker, you're a laborer, you're a pastor, you're a friend, you're a teacher, you're a lawyer. All of these things, you've now been changed. You are in Jesus. So regardless of anything that goes on in your life or whatever labels or identity someone gives you, you are in Jesus. Therefore, you can find contentment. But what actually powers that contentment? It is him, Jesus, who what? Strengthens you. So there's a component of strength that we need to understand. And we need to look biblically at it because let's be honest with this, this here, this whole thing of what Paul says, all the letters that he writes to churches, the thing he's constantly teaching, these don't just come out of thin air. It's not just Paul in a, in a, like this little bubble saying, this is what I believe, therefore you should believe it. It's like he has like thoroughly read and understood the text. This is Paul who knew the Old Testament, who studied those scriptures, who actually persecuted the Christian church based on those scriptures. He is the guy who knows them well. And so this is actually coming from something. Like if we were to look through the Bible at different places and say like, what does this strength actually look like biblically? I think we get a clear picture. Listen to this. Isaiah 41.10, fear not for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Psalm 81.1, sing aloud to God our strength. Okay, Habakkuk 3.19, the Lord God is my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my strength. That's Psalm 18. Be strong and courageous. Joshua 1.9. Why? Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you. That's how you're strong and courageous. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Nehemiah 10. All throughout the biblical canonical history of the text, we see over and over and over again that any human display of strength is never untied from God's love and presence in that person's life. Never. All of it comes from who God is in their life. Therefore, we cannot begin to live and think that strength for what we do comes from just a verse. Strength for what we need to do comes from how we feel. Strength comes from who we are. No, none of these things. The strength you need to find contentment can only be found, only ever be found in a loving relationship with God the Father. And here's why it's good news. Because we recognize and understand that God himself isn't just loving, but God is love. God is constantly love. He is the embodiment of this characteristic. He is love. Therefore, regardless of what you go through, you don't have to question, does God love me? Because that's the cry of our hearts in these moments. It's like, God, prove to me that you love me. Give me the strength that you love me so that what? I can be content so I can have this experience. Give me the things that show me you love me, these good gifts that I want. Give me the things that make me feel you love me, the outcomes I want. God, show me you love me in these ways. And God's saying, man, I am love and I am for you regardless if you're high or low. And this is what Paul's trying to communicate to us. Regardless if he's in a prison or he's abounding somewhere on a ship in the ocean, just loving life, regardless of those things, he has the strength of Christ in him who gives him contentment. This may sound like something that you've experienced and you like, okay, yeah, I get it. God's love is supposed to strengthen me for whatever I walk through, but it doesn't change how I feel, but it will. I have seen as a pastor time and time again, people walking through incredibly hard situations and seeing the love of God be the only thing that carries them through it, like impossible situations. I've seen families lose children. 
I've seen families lose significant others due to overdose. I've seen people come into my sphere, into my office and scream at me, like screaming and crying, tell me they're in heaven. Because that's the hope I need right now. Tell me they're in heaven. And they're looking to me at some, at some spiritual authority who's going to be the one to say, yeah, they're in heaven. Let me give you that encouragement. Of course, I want to. Are you kidding? All I want to do in that moment is make them feel good. But I have to realize, and they have to realize that the only thing that's going to give them this solid contentment is the presence of God in their life. And so I do so much less than to try and divide and pursue and show them the outcome of where someone is and do so much more to help them remember and to, to actually trust in the God of the universe that they love to build into that relationship. Like, how is it? How is it that my mom can lose my dad after the super long relationship and then like actually continue to, instead of just like weeping and falling apart for herself, start to love and care for her kids and others? How is that possible? How can my grandmother watch my grandfather after living with him her, her whole life and loving only him and spending all this time, how can she like begin to function after losing him? How can someone, when I go in, who has terminal cancer, and I go into, the, into their, their hospital room, and they're in literally the last days of their life, how can they look to me, like no energy, barely able to talk, and say, no, it's good. I'm doing well. No, you're not. You're not doing well. I'm at peace. This doesn't feel like peace. I felt like I just walked into the seventh floor of a hospital where every single room is filled with terminal cancer patients. That doesn't feel like peace to me. That doesn't feel like contentment. That doesn't feel like stability. And then I look into their eyes and I feel something more, knowing that the Holy Spirit is at work in their life to give them something that they couldn't have experienced outside of that context. It's that God, in the moment of need, when you're in all things, when you're riding high, when you're riding low, if you are the one to connect to him and build relationship with him, will give you a contentment, a strength that will drive you by his love to give you a contentment and a peace beyond any understanding you have or any understanding even your pastor has. And I've seen this time and time and time again. That is the love of Jesus who strengthens people. So in your life, as you walk through anything, continue to remind yourself of the goodness of who God is, of how he loves you, of what Jesus accomplished for you. It's like this person can be on their deathbed and say, man, like I can be content because I know who, who has me and who holds me. I can be content because of who Jesus is and how he loves me. I can be content because God is the one who pursued me first and gave me this relationship with me. I can be content because I know that I'm with him for eternity. And if I die, it's gain because I'm actually with him. I can be content because I have my hope in something more than my circumstance. Yes, all my dreams of what my future is going to hold are gone. All the times I wish I could have, all the moments I wish I could hold on to, all of those things, but they pale in comparison to the love and joy and contentment I have in all things through Christ who strengthens me, this God who loved me so much that he would suffer in my place. And so I actually look at my own suffering, like Paul says he does, as gain that God has given me that so that I can walk like him, be like him, be closer to him. And in the highs and lows of life, I can be thankful like he was to the church, or I can be stuck in prison and have the worst times of my life and yet still be content because it's Jesus who's the one who actually cares for me. It's Jesus who died for me. It's Jesus who loves me. It's Jesus who holds on to me for eternity. And it's him who holds the key and the secret to my joy and contentment, which is him. Let's pray together for that. And Father, I thank you so much that you love us. 
And I thank you that we can look into a text like this where often we walk through it and we think that it's self-seeking, self-serving. And yet we come out the other side of this knowing that it's so much more than that. That self-sufficiency is a void, 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 void pursuit. But a good pursuit is to look and long on to you, Jesus, to understand you more, to desire you more, to pursue you more, to allow your love to encourage strength in us that help us to find contentment regardless of the situations we walk through and the pain we face. That we can look to all the good things in our life and say, man, those are all just rubbish compared to the love that Christ has for me. Good things, yes. Great things, no. Because the great one is the one who holds all things for me. And so I pray this over everyone here, that if they're going through hard times where they're disheartened, where they feel discouraged, where they feel like they don't have a contentment in their life, would you show up for them and pursue them and give them more of you, Jesus, help them to realign and understand and grow in the idea that in our relationship and understanding of love for you, we can actually grow in our contentment in our life. That it's not tied to our circumstance, but it's tied to a person, to you, Jesus, to your sacrifice, to your achievement on the cross, to the propitiation you gave us for, your, for our sins, the way you love us, the perfect sacrifice, Jesus. We pray these things in that power in your name over all of us. In your name, Jesus, we pray it. Amen.